0: This is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And before our program begins, I'm asking you to join your fellow listeners by sending us a donation now. It's easy to do at LOE.org. Or call me at 800-745-8810. Thanks. And now for the show. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This summer, the country is roasted in the worst drought in two generations, heightening concerns about climate disruption.
1: Nobody can look at our continent this summer with its record wildfires, its record heat waves, and not have some deep foreboding about what is happening on this earth.
0: Writer Bill McKibben lays out what he calls terrifying new math related to our addiction to fossil fuels. Also, a new engineering feat, but the world's fastest car will hardly save gas. It goes 1,000 miles an hour.
2: There is a tremendous sense of awe about enormous power and uh, enormous quantities of almost anything, particularly uh, vehicles for speed. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted
0: Stanley Studios, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. First, there was an early hot spring, and then a broiling summer, and now about half of America is sizzling in the grip of drought. At a rash of tornadoes, early tropical storms, and widespread ice melt, and many observers point to climate disruption. Bill McKibben is one of the most outspoken American voices on the question of climate. His nonprofit group, 350.org, organized the largest global protest in history. Now he's taking his message to the pages of Rolling Stone magazine with his treatise, Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. Bill McKibben, welcome. Hello, Steve. How are you? I am well, although your article says that clearly the planet will not be well if we continue on this
4: path.
1: Yeah, I, I'm afraid that you know even these even to me these numbers came as something of a shock. They really shouldn't have because, of course, I've been doing this a long time. I wrote the first book about all this almost a quarter century ago. The end of nature. We
0: we, we can't we can't be that old that I was in touch with you back in 1989 when the <laughs> end like of end of nature came out and we were getting this program started.
1: Yeah, you thought one the, book would do it, huh? Uh, well, I was pretty sure that that would be all it would take. But it turns out that's not quite how change happens. And in fact, what's happened over the quarter century is really that we've lost more than we've won. Um, As you know, the amount of carbon keeps increasing that we pour into the atmosphere and the temperature keeps going up. What's new, and it's thanks to some financial analysts and uh, accountant types in the UK, is that we now have a kind of better mathematical grip on why, unless we change things very dramatically, this is uh, all but inevitable. And that's what the the math in this piece is about.
0: And by the way, a little bit of math on your own article uh, in Rolling Stone. Um, as we're speaking, the magazine actually wasn't on the stands, just online. Uh, you're approaching 100,000 likes online.
1: I feel very well liked. Yes, uh, it's um, interesting, because it's a kind of long piece, 6,000 words, and it has a lot of numbers in it, and yet people seem very eager to read it and to share it. And it's, I think Rolling Stone said it may have gotten the most views of anything they've done in, in a long time. I think there's a lot of people looking around at the drought and the wildfire and the heat waves really starting to come to terms with the fact that we're in trouble and trying to figure out exactly the contours of that trouble.
0: All right. So now, as they say, let's do the numbers here. The first number that you have uh, in your article is two degrees Celsius. Yeah. Why is that important?
1: Well, it's important mostly because it's the one thing that the whole world has agreed on about climate change. All our dysfunctional governments that haven't gotten anything done have nonetheless, time after time, put their name to pieces of paper saying we can't let the temperature rise more than two degrees Celsius, about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, frankly that number is too high. We've raised the temperature about one degree Celsius and we've already melted 40% of the sea ice in the summer Arctic. If we were at all sensible, we would do everything we could to stop right here.
0: And yet you say it's not enough.
1: Well, here's the thing. Were we to hope to stay below two degrees, to have a reasonable chance of keeping the world's temperature increase below two degrees, the scientists tell us that we can only emit about 565 gigatons more carbon. We're emitting about 30 gigatons a year and increasing that about 3% a year. That's how much coal and oil and gas we're burning. So that gives us uh, 16 or 17 years, which is bad news in and of itself. But the real bad news and the the number that was the really scary one for me in this piece is the amount of carbon – that the fossil fuel companies and the countries that kind of operate like fossil fuel companies, think Venezuela or Kuwait, the amount that they already have on their books in their reserves, that's about 2,800 gigatons or about five times more than even the most conservative scientist or government says that we could safely burn. So let's look
0: at the money that's involved. The researchers you cite here say that there's five times as much oil and coal and gas uh, on the books of various uh, energy companies as climate scientists think is safe to burn. So that we have to keep uh, four out of five of those uh, barrels of oil and, and, and tons of coal underground.
1: And at current market value, that means write off of something like $20 trillion. That's bigger than the United States deficit. It's larger probably than the bubble that surrounded housing. How do you persuade
0: corporations to give up $20 trillion in assets? Well, it's
1: possible you can't, but the only way you can is to, since we're never going to have as much money as they do, is to build movement, to work in different currencies, you know, passion and spirit and creativity. And sometimes, at least for a while, it works. Last year at this time, everybody told us that it was absolutely inevitable that the Keystone XL pipeline would be built and, and built this year. We organized the largest civil disobedience action in 30 years in this country. And at least for now, it's not been built. I'm not guaranteeing victory. In fact, if you were forcing me to bet, you know, I honest man, I'd probably be forced to bet that we're not going to win. But the stakes are high. The stakes are are really nothing less than just about everything.
0: You know, Bill, you always uh, keep things a little bit light for us. And at one point, you have an analogy uh, between carbon and beer in this article.
1: I am glad you picked up on that because it's, uh, well, it's a subject dear to my heart. We know the two degrees, you know, is about like knowing what the legal drinking limit is, right? You can blow a 0.8 and you're over that, then you're off to jail. And we know about how much you can drink uh, and have some hope of staying below that. You know, if you're the guy my size and you drink six beers slowly over the evening, then maybe you'll be pretty close to it, you know, right around there. That's the two degrees and the 565 gigatons. Here's the problem. The fossil fuel industry has, you know, three 12-packs on the table, you you know, ready to pour. And that's the trouble that we're in. We're about to go way, way, way over the limit, and nobody knows, president, no Politburo, no anybody, is effectively saying, like, time to slow down.
0: Now, I'm thinking of environmental activists pretty much as a whole, and I think rather understandably, they really haven't wanted to take on the fossil fuel industry. No, because
1: uh, it's awful powerful. So why would you? And we've kept hoping that they would, you know, somehow magically become our allies. And and occasionally, there were sort of signs that that might happen. I remember being with you, Steve, maybe 15 years ago in an MIT conference room, listening to the people from BP explain that they were now going to be beyond petroleum. And they changed their logo. And they put some solar panels on a few of their gas stations. But they never really made any significant investment in renewable energy. They just kept looking for Hydrocarbons. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, they said, forget even those token investments. We're going back to our core business. And their core business turned out to be, you know, destroying the Gulf of Mexico. And so the upshot of it is, and what we at 350.org are going to do is try and take on that political power of those fossil fuel industries. We're going to go right at them, trying to kind of foment a, a divestment movement that looked a little like the, say, the anti apartheid movement of a generation ago. All right, to continue with the South Africa
0: analogy for a moment. You had a system of apartheid and you had a long resistance, a war, uh and then seemingly things changed.
1: Why? Well, the situations are not identical obviously. The the best, you know, the most hopeful part of the analogy for us is just that that financial pressure paid off. In this case, of course, it's hard because all of us are beneficiaries of the fossil fuel system as well as you know its potential victims. On the other hand, we have as our sad recruiting sergeant, our unfortunate ally, we have Mother Nature who's making it abundantly clear now just what's going on. Nobody can look at our continent this summer with its record wildfires, its record heat waves, its incredible deep drought, 76% of the farms in America now in drought areas, and not have some deep foreboding about what is happening on this earth.
0: In South Africa, much of the argument was a moral one. What's the moral argument you make here?
1: Uh, I think that the climate change argument has often been put as a kind of technical argument. But in fact, at base, it's a moral argument. What we're dealing with is the out-of-control greed of a few companies. We know what the future should look like, and we know how to do it. There was one day last month when Germany, one of the few countries on Earth that's actually tried hard to do this stuff, one day when it generated more than half its power from solar panels within its borders. Now, more than half its electricity from the sun. Munich's north of Montreal, what does that indicate? It indicates that it's not technology that limits us, it's political will. And one of the ways we will generate that political will is by making it clear to people just what the greed of this industry is doing to the one planet we've got. So, what exactly are you
0: calling for in terms of the vestiture of fossil fuel uh, well, look, uh, industry?
1: I, I think that college kids need to be sitting down with their boards of trustees and saying, "Really, you really want to pay for our education with investments that guarantee we'll have no planet on which to carry out that education?" I think people need to sit down with state and municipal pension funds and say, "Really, you're going to pay for people's retirement with investments that ensure there's not a planet for them to retire on?" We're going to try and put on pressure like that. Uh, by itself, it won't be enough to carry the day, but it's the kind of thing that sometimes can add up and add up fast, change people's understanding of where we are, introduce a new wild card into this rigged game.
0: So you'll end your article saying, we've met the enemy and it is shell.
1: I uh, was reflecting on the fact that we've been told very often that this is a personal problem, a lack of uh, willingness on the part of people to change. And yes, we need to take shorter showers and drive smaller cars, and many of us have worked hard on those things. But the real problem is the amount of money that these fossil fuel companies pour into our political system to make sure that nothing ever changes, that their special brakes stay intact, that they alone among industries continue to be able to pour their waste out for free. And that's why when you get right down to it in any kind of real mathematical analysis, with apologies to Walt Kelly, we have met the enemy and they is Shell and Chevron and Conoco and Exxon and all the rest.
0: But, Bill, you could say that we're the enemy, too, because we have all our money in the 401ks, uh, the pension funds, uh, various endowments invested in those companies that you just mentioned they make a very fine return these days
1: and let's hope that we can bring ourselves to part at least with some of that easy return because the long-term return on that investment may not be held exactly but it's got a pretty similar temperature
0: bill mckibben's latest article in rolling stone is entitled global warming's terrifying new math thanks bill for taking the time with me
1: today take care steve
0: Just ahead, how protected areas of oceans can help fishermen. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Brazil is renowned for biodiversity. There's the Amazon rainforest, of course, but the Atlantic Ocean offshore from Brazil is also teeming with diverse life. Now that marine life is getting more attention from conservation organizations and the Brazilian government. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom visited a recently protected marine ecosystem in the south of Brazil and has our story.
5: From a motorboat driving parallel to the white sands of Ipanema Beach, you can see rainforest-draped mountains and the iconic statue of Christ with his arms spread wide, above the famously beautiful city of Rio de Janeiro. Just three miles south of Ipanema are the picturesque Agajas Islands, where tourists and locals come to scuba dive and fish. Fernando Morais is a marine biologist with the National Museum of Brazil. He stands on the bow of a motorboat anchored off one of the islands. You
6: no, know, this is very common. This kind of fishing, the like recreational fishing, uh, spending the day here fishing and drinking beer, of course. You can see by the shapes of the man.
5: Samba music carries across the water as pot-bellied men in tiny speedos stand on their boats and cast fishing lines into the choppy sea. When the sun gets too hot, people jump in for a swim. If they're lucky, they might just spot a dolphin. These islands and the water around them are full of rare endemic species found nowhere else on Earth. The ocean here is especially rich in tropical fish and sponges only recently described by science. Above the water, the islands attract birds that come here to nest and breed. Flocks of birds fill the sky, brown boobies with bright blue legs, Black and white frigate birds with bulbous red throats that they puff out to attract a mate.
6: The ones with the the big red throat they are the males of the frigate birds and we are in the middle of the nesting season. Most of them with the, the red color very brilliant. And that's a signal for the female that they are strong ones, they are being successful in catching fish, they will be able to feed their, their youngs.
5: The sky is just thick with birds. Do you have any idea how many there are out here?
6: We have an estimate about 5,000 frigate birds nesting on these islands and more, about 2,000 brown boobies.
5: Those numbers make the Cagahas Islands archipelago the second largest nesting area in Brazil for boobies and frigate birds. In 2010, the six islands became Brazil's first federally protected natural marine monument. Divers and fishermen can still come and enjoy the water, but they are not allowed to catch anything within 30 feet of the islands. People are not allowed to land on the islands anymore either, leaving nesting birds in peace. Before the islands were protected, fishermen camped here and often left trash behind. Volunteers took more than 175 pounds of garbage from one island in a single cleanup day. The biggest concern for the Cagajas Islands is pollution from Rio de Janeiro. It's just three miles away and is home to more than six million people. It's also one of the largest industrial ports in the country. Fabiana Bicudu is in charge of the Cagajas Islands project for the government of Brazil.
4: We are very near with a big seat, so we have impacts like organic waste, organic waste that comes from the city and also the... Big vessels all waiting to enter the city, and we have the residual oils in the water because of this activity.
5: There's another potential threat from oil, drilling. On the horizon are a handful of deep water oil platforms. Petrobras is the largest oil company in Brazil, and also the sole sponsor of this island conservation project. It paid for the nesting bird count and all of the scientific research related to the project. Petrobras invests in conservation programs like this to offset some of their environmental impacts elsewhere. In the two years since the islands gained federal protection, Fabiana Bakuru is already counting successes. In the past, fishermen used bombs and poison to force the fish to the surface. But no longer.
4: We don't see these kind of activities we don't see anymore at the islands. And it is better because divers and visitors uh, feel safety to be there, so we have uh, uh, bad users go- coming out and good users coming in.
5: And the government wants to encourage good users and sustainability. In the future, it plans to increase the 30 feet no-fishing zone. But marine biologist Fernando Morais says even 30 feet is significant.
6: That by itself is very important because you have place for the fish to reproduce and the invertebrates and all that, and a, a place where the the nature is allowed to develop itself without any kind of pressure it's very important
5: the shallow rocky margins of the islands are nurseries for marine life the government has been working with local fishermen to educate them about the importance of this area for breeding fish the message seems to be paying off manasi is 23 years old and has been fishing here since he was 12
6: My father fished here, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, many generations. I think this is a very important area for the fish to reproduce. So if we
0: protect it now, there will be more fish for us to fish in the future.
5: That's the hope, though of course they don't know yet if it will work. But for fishermen, tourists and environmentalists, Rio's first federally protected marine monument is a promising first step. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil.
0: Our story from Brazil was made possible by a fellowship from Earth Journalism Network. For pictures of the islands, sail on over to our website, loe.org. Now, there's a strange juxtaposition between protected islands and the offshore oil rigs that Bobby saw off the coast of Rio in Brazil. Around the globe, multinational companies are increasingly drilling into the depths, and as the deep water disaster in the Gulf of Mexico showed, those wells can threaten the environment. Yet at the same time, the amount of ocean protected by national governments is also increasing. Philip Dearden studies these marine protected areas. He's professor and chair of the Department of Geography at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, and he joins us now. Welcome
7: to Living on Earth, Professor. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So tell me about marine protected areas, your area of research. How do they work?
7: Well, essentially they work the same way as national parks work in the terrestrial environment. We say these areas are set aside to protect environmental processes and for the species they're in, and they take top priority. So we don't kill them. We don't interrupt the processes there. And so in so doing, we increase their diversity and we increase their uh, their numbers and we keep uh, healthy ecosystems alive.
0: Now, you can put a fence around a national park, but fish can go anywhere. What's the advantage of having a special marine protected area?
7: The advantages for sedentary species of fish are very clear. For fish that do a lot of movement, then you have to look at, do these fish need protection? And if so, in what particular areas? So, for example, you might set aside an MPA for them in an area for where they were doing a spawning aggregation or something like that.
0: So uh, marine protected areas, especially good to protect the breeding areas for certain kinds of fish.
7: That's right. So um, uh,
0: Bobby Bascom did a story about some protected islands off Rio de Janeiro in, in Brazil. and The limits only go a few feet from shore. I'm wondering, I mean, just how big do you have to have a marine protected area for it to be uh, effective as a conservation device?
7: It's just like the terrestrial environment that, uh, in general, larger areas were much more ecologically effective. So the larger the area, the better that it is. As well, you have a lot of edge effects on these uh, on these marine protected areas. If you have people fishing around the outside and you've only got 30 feet protected, fish don't have to uh, swim very far to become unprotected. So 30 feet would be the uh, smallest that I've ever heard of. Generally, the science suggests that at least 30% of every marine habitat should be in a no-take zone, should be protected.
0: So, tell me, what's your favorite marine protected area around the planet?
7: Whoa, that's a a tough one. Uh, We spend a lot of time working in Thailand, and I've been undertaking studies there for almost 30 years. I still love the The diving off the reefs there, there's still some wonderful coral to be seen, uh, still quite a high abundance of fish. When I go to big areas such as the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, I'm also awed by just the scale of them and the scale uh, and the efficiency of the protection in those kinds of areas.
0: And how effective do you think that uh, the marine protected areas have been there off Thailand, have been off the Great Barrier Reef? How effective is this as a conservation measure?
7: Well, the research is very strong that when you do establish a protected area in the ocean, that the numbers of fish increase, the diversity increases, the size class of the fish increase. And uh, along with that, there are other components of the ecosystem that also increase in their overall abundance. And so they've been proven to be extremely effective. And uh, some of the best results on that come again from the Great Barrier Reef, and from monitoring that has been uh, undertaken there.
0: Uh, Professor Dearden, I understand that part of your work focuses on incentive-based conservation. Uh, please tell me a bit about that.
7: Well, the way that most protected areas are protected is by a national legislation and policy, and then we pay park guards to come and enforce those regulations and policies. But the optimal situation is when local people, in fact, it in their own best interest, to protect the conservation values. In terms of fishing, uh, the research clearly shows that over 10, 15 years' time, generally fishing returns improve because you have a spillover effect from the MPA into the local fishing areas, so there'll be more fish to catch. Other ones relate to transformation of the economy. Um, We particularly worked with how can you derive more income from ecotourism, And how can those incomes go to local villages and help replace more extractive fishing uh, activities?
0: So if I were to look at the oceans as a whole, what portion of them, what percentage of of the oceans and marine areas around the world are are considered to be in protected zones?
7: Well, now it's just over 1% of the ocean is considered to be protected. Again, what is protected? Not all those uh, necessarily forbid fishing, for example, So in Canada, every marine protected area is supposed to have a no-take zone. Under the Parks Canada uh, marine protected areas, there is only one established at the moment, and that no-take zone was 3% of the area. So only 3% of the entire uh, protected area was actually protected from fishing. And within that 3%, it still allowed Aboriginal fishing. So when you actually get down to it, there are no areas that are set aside that are totally non-extractive.
0: Dr. Philip Dearden is Professor and Chair of the Department of Geography at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. Thank you so much.
7: Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: This week, we have another installment of the Living on Earth Orion magazine series, The Place Where You Live. For more than a decade, Orion has invited readers to put their memories of home on a map and submit essays on their website. And now, we're giving them a voice. The special place that you care about. Where you go to be close to nature doesn't have to be exotic. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It just has to speak to you.
4: I'm Shatali Banerjee. I'm from Niskayuna, New York. It's about 18 miles from Albany, the capital of New York. I'm a biomedical scientist and a science writer, and I also write essays, travel narratives, short poems. And this is a piece that I wrote about a park that I visit often. It is on the banks of Mohawk River, which is a tributary of the Hudson River. It's my place to contemplate, to write, and uh, I also do a lot of bird watching there. There are uh, several species of birds, common birds, but I do look at them. gazing a squawk across the Mohawk River. Hot, parched parking lot eases into cool, shady oasis beneath maple and cottonwood trees lining the Mohawk Hudson hike-bike trail. I settle down on a bench as the air fills with swirling wisps of cotton. Squawk! Squawk! Loud, deep, guttural, throaty. I scan the marshes. No suspect. Distant cattails undulate in gentle breeze. Smack at the center of river, an angler's boat. Red-winged blackbird hops amongst maple leaves. Here I see it. Here I don't. Flycatcher dives into carpet of water chestnuts. Squawk! I gaze up and down the river. Grackle keeps its yellow bright inquisitive eyes on me iridescent feathers now purple now the deepest blue red-tailed hawk misses a chipmunk squawk i walk eyes peel to the river marshland shrubs river bank resplendent with vibrant rose-purple spikes of purple loosestrife squawk squawk A large gray-blue bird rises from the duckweed, slowly flaps its way across the marsh. I am spellbound as I savor the leisurely, graceful gray-and-black flight, the elegant curve of the neck, bill, so yellow, sharp, and strong, slender, long legs. It lands on driftwood, composes itself. Then starts stalking with deliberation Stilt-like legs cover stretches of marshland In the blink of an eye Yellow, gimlet eyes intense and focused The beak dives in and out My binoculars tremble as I watch a primal struggle unfold Gulp! Squawk! Squawk! The great blue heron I stand at river's edge mesmerized
0: Shatali Banerjee lives in Niskayuna, New York. Tell us about the place where you live. You can find out about our collaboration with Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay by visiting our website, LOE.org. Coming up, how our passion for sports is being harnessed to green America. Keep listening to
3: Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Breckenridge Capital Advisors, applying a sustainable approach to fixed income investing. www.breckenridge.com. The Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin.
0: You might think that a gull is a gull is a gull, but as Bird Notes Mary McCann reports, it isn't exactly so.
8: If you visit the beach as summer wanes, you may notice that gulls with different appearances are showing up. Gull watching is pretty tame along the coasts most of the summer. Many gull species retreat well north to nest, a few others inland. Along the Atlantic, it's mostly nesting herring and laughing gulls that stick around through summer. On the Pacific coast, it's glaucus-winged and western. But by late August, the picture begins to change. Bonaparte's gulls begin arriving along both coasts and at the Great Lakes. These small, sleek, black-headed birds begin flocking south in August. Handsome, pale-gray, ring-billed gulls also return to both coasts in late summer, most having nested inland. Both species winter along the coasts. And along the Pacific, one very distinctive gull has come just for a summer visit, the Heerman's gull. Watch for a gull with a very dark back, a powder-white head, and, unmistakably, a blood-red beak. Heerman's gulls nest along the northwest coast of Mexico, disperse northward for a few months each summer, then return south. I'm Mary McCann.
0: To see some gulliful photos of some of the gulls mentioned in this bird note, walk on over to our website, LOE.org. Now, you might have noticed that the Olympic Games are currently underway in London. And of course, as ever, the Games spark grumbles, heartbreak and triumph and debate about the role of sport in national and international life. The London Games are selling themselves not only as a way to revitalize a rundown part of the city, but also as the greenest Olympics with plenty of venues designed to be recycled. But Alan Hershkowitz argues that sports can have a huge influence on environmental attitudes whether or not it's an Olympic year. He's a senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council and directs its sports greening project. Mr. Hershkowitz, welcome to Living on Earth.
9: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, you point out that sports are enormously influential culturally. For example, the sports boycott effect on apartheid-era South Africa, or, say, Jesse Owens' spectacular success at the 1936 Olympics in Germany. But tell me, really, do you think they can change environmental attitudes?
9: Well, it's interesting. Clearly, we need a cultural shift in the way we think about environmental stewardship. Congress, our government, is not leading the way on global climate disruption, on biodiversity loss. Based on past cultural shifts, it's clear that government doesn't always lead the way. Gender equality, it was not Congress that led the way on gender equality, civil rights. It was not the government that led the way. There was a cultural shift in the United States about race relations, and that forced Congress to act. So what we're seeing is cultural shifts are led not by government, but by the people. The sports industry is enormously influential. 13% of Americans say they pay attention to science. 61% say they pay attention to sports. Professional sports is also nonpartisan. It's not political. So if there was ever an industry that could confirm for us the nonpartisan mainstream nature of environmental stewardship, the need for better environmental stewardship, the sports industry is a great spokesperson for that cause.
0: Which sports in particular do you think have the power to get us to change our environmental attitudes?
9: Well, I think, you know, all sports... Can play a role. Obviously, Major League Baseball, NASCAR, uh, National Football League, the National Basketball Association, the U.S. Tennis Association, uh, Major League Soccer, all of these sports leagues and their teams are now using some form of renewable energy. They have some recycling programs and composting programs. They're all looking at energy efficiency. They're all looking to use renewable energy. They're all looking at how to enhance waste management, and also fan engagement. The National Hockey League and the National Basketball Association earlier this year ran two public service announcements in one week that was seen by 45 million people encouraging people to recycle and to think about renewable energy and to think about water conservation.
0: Now, what evidence, uh, Alan, do you have that the green ideas of sports uh, enterprises and various officials, that their green ideas are rubbing off on sports fans themselves?
9: Well, you know, people don't go to sporting events thinking about the environment. But when you show up at the U.S. Open Tennis Championships, you see a public service announcement by Billie Jean King and another one by Venus Williams and another one by the Bryant brothers talking about local food, organic food, recycling, using mass transit. Do we know that this is having a a transformative effect? I don't know. But I'll tell you, the fact that these businesses, global businesses, with iconic participants, is encouraging people to think about environmentalism can only help us. And remember, outside the family, the most iconic role models are often athletes and entertainers.
0: Now, a cynic would say, well, but they're supposed to do that. It's sort of like the 55-mile-an-hour sign there. You know, they're everywhere on the highways, and, you know, who pays attention?
9: Well, we could be cynical about it, but, you know, to me, the fact that sports is embracing environmental stewardship represents a watershed in the history of the environmental movement. It's kind of interesting that the modern environmental movement, which started over 40 years ago, had not collaborated with professional sports until recently. Given its cultural significance, it's such an iconic industry. It's one of the most culturally influential industries in the world. Remember, companies pay billions of dollars every year to have their brand name affiliated with professional sports. Coca-Cola is one of the biggest sponsors of the Olympics and has been for 80 years. Clearly, they think that messaging affiliation with professional sports is good for branding. If it's good for branding for Coca-Cola, why is it not good for branding for environmental stewardship?
0: Alan Herskovitz, I've got to ask you about the London Olympics. You were over there. How impressed were you, and how green are they uh, compared to what they had hoped for?
9: The greening initiatives at the London uh, Olympics are extraordinarily broad and diverse, And it ranges not only from uh, reducing carbon emissions. They're trying to reduce their carbon emissions by 50%. They're trying to uh, actually ensure 20% of the energy is used from on-site renewable energy sources. They're looking to reduce waste by 90%. They're looking to provide 100% of the spectators with opportunities to arrive by mass transit or bicycling or walking. They have created the largest new park in Europe. In 150 years, the housing is designed with sustainability and energy efficiency in mind. This Olympics really, uh, I think, has one of the most ambitious environmental agendas of any sporting event in history. Are they achieving it all? Definitely not. But they're saying that as well. They produced a a report that critiques what they have done wrong uh, and documents what they have done right. So I have to really give the London Olympics... Uh, very high grades for their ambitions and also for their honesty in the way they're evaluating their accomplishments.
0: Alan Herskowitz directs the Sports Greening Project at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Olympics showcase the power, speed, and skill of the world's most elite athletes. But not too far from this year's main Olympic venue, a team of engineers is building a car that will also highlight power, skill, and especially speed. It's an automobile that will go 1,000 miles an hour. From the IEEE Spectrum radio special Fastest on Earth, Lisa Raffensperger traveled to London to attend the car's first public appearance.
10: They rolled up in Porsches, Jaguars, and Ferraris. Middle-aged men wearing loafers and carrying backpacks piled out of cars. Antique roadsters and pristine Bentleys pulled up onto the grass to park. I, on the other hand, made my grand entrance to the London Motorsports Festival in slightly humbler fashion.
7: Bus Goodwood, ladies and gents, Festival of Speed.
10: On the free shuttle bus. The Festival of Speed, held outside London every year, is a car lover's dream.
2: Festival of Speed radio on the way in, in association with Telegraph. You will have heard uh, my colleague Chris in talking to some of the great characters from across the pond.
10: Vintage Indy cars 500 cars roared by on the racetrack. Slick Formula One racers stood on pedestals under the summer sun. A crowd began settling into the bleachers. One man poured himself hot tea from a thermos. <laughs> But the most stunning car on the fairgrounds that day wouldn't grace the track. It won't appear in a showroom. Only one man will ever sit behind its wheel. Tucked away in a tent off to the side was a car unlike any that's ever been built. A car that will go four times as fast as the fastest car you can imagine. A car that will drive faster than the speed of sound. Just once in history has a car broken the sound barrier. That was in 1997. The car was the Thrust SSC for supersonic car, a slender black needle flanked by huge jet engines. It was built by a team of British engineers led by Richard Noble, and its driver was Royal Air Force pilot Andy Green. In the Nevada desert, Green piloted the car to a land speed record, 763 miles per hour, breaking the speed of sound. I
9: would say that was fast.
10: The shockwave knocked frames off the walls of houses dozens of miles away. Now the team is preparing to smash its own record with the Bloodhound SSC. The car has been in the works since 2007, and it's currently being built in a workshop in Bristol. And when it's raced in the desert of South Africa, the Bloodhound is expected to set a new land speed record of 1,000 miles per hour. first thing you notice about the Bloodhound is its size. It's very, very big. Shaped like a huge dart, it's nine feet tall and three times as long as a normal car. But then, not much about the Bloodhound is like a normal car. For starters, there's the rocket. Engineer Daniel Jubb has designed the world's most powerful hybrid rocket to propel the car. It's similar in size to the rocket-powering Virgin Galactic's Spaceship 2. And the hybrid part comes from its two components, Jubb
11: explains. We use a solid fuel grain, which is very similar to the propellant grain in a solid propellant rocket, but it won't burn on its own. It can only burn in the presence of a liquid oxidizer, which is stored in a separate tank. Now, that gives you the ability to turn off the flow of oxidizer and shut the system down. So it's the ideal candidate for use in a land speed record car because you have that element of controllability while retaining some of the simplicity.
10: The rocket's built into the bottom of the car, and above it, just behind the cockpit is the car's other propellant, a fighter jet engine.
11: What we have with Bloodhound is a a really quite elegant solution with the jet engine and the rocket. The jet engine is an EJ-200. It's a proven, well-established unit, and it's it's very controllable. However, the drag from the air intake and the size of the engine meant that we wouldn't get to a target of 1,000 miles an hour simply by using two jet engines. So we need the brute force of the rocket Though previous land
10: speed record cars have used rockets or jet engines, Bloodhound is the first to use both. And finally, the car relies on one additional engine, from a Formula One racer. But it doesn't power the car. It's needed just to pump the liquid oxidizer into the rocket, at a flow rate fast enough to fill a bathtub in three seconds. Putting all those components into one vehicle was the job of Chief Engineer Mark Chapman, and it came with its fair share of headaches.
2: The problem is that the lower altitude you go, the thicker the air becomes. Now, although aircraft do fly at twice the speed of sound, and the the typhoon, the aircraft we have the engine from, that flies at twice the speed of sound, it cannot do that at the altitude that we, we're we driving the car at. In fact, nothing has gone that speed at the altitude we're going at. So we have to be very careful with how we get the flow into that engine.
10: Wheels also do weird things at such extreme speeds.
2: So the way the car steers is like a conventional car. It's got double wishbone front suspension, and he's only got a couple of degrees of steering lock. So he's got a rubbish turning circle, but he hopefully doesn't need a park or anything like that. But up to about 400 miles an hour, these work like wheels on your car. They steer by sticking into the ground, and, and as Andy turns it, it digs in and it turns the car. Of about 400, they start to work like rudders. More and more, the aerodynamics of the wheel is what's causing it to do the steering. There is a tremendous sense of awe about enormous power and uh, enormous quantities of almost anything, particularly uh, vehicles for speed.
10: Bloodhound pilot Andy Green.
2: It is something you can actually observe. It's very difficult to observe enormous weight or indeed enormous power from uh, for an engine. But enormous speed, you can actually see something moving incredibly quickly and get a sense of what it's doing.
10: But if you want to feel what it's like to drive faster than the speed of sound, not just to observe it, here's the closest I can offer.
2: going on now. OK. Disconnected. Bye.
10: A video recording takes us back to 1997. Andy Green is settling himself into the cramped cockpit of the thrust SSC. All you can see at the windshield is desert, with a white line stretching toward the horizon. ready to The car responds slowly to the throttle, but then starts picking up speed.
2: By 200 miles an hour, I've got full power on. The equivalent of 100,000 horsepower is now accelerating a 10-ton car at over 20 miles an hour per second. So the car is literally going from 200 to 300 in five seconds, into 400, another five seconds, into 500, and so on. Two good nozzles looking for max.
10: 500 to 600, the car is fishtailing. It veers 50 feet from the line we're driving.
2: Approaching 700 miles now, the airflow starts to go supersonic.
10: You enter the measured mile, where you will be timed, and the mile is over. Measured mile, measured mile.
2: The actual measured mile itself takes 4.7 seconds.
10: Immediately, you close the throttle, and all your weight ploughs forward.
2: And that's there's a huge uh, physical change for me from being pinned back in my seat to being thrown forward into the uh, into the harness.
10: When you've slowed enough, you apply the brakes.
2: And then it all starts to happen in slow motion. By the time you get down to 200 miles an hour, it does actually feel so slow that you could just get out and walk.
10: And as you come to a stop just two minutes after setting off, you're 13 miles from where you started, and you're the fastest thing that's ever crossed the Earth's surface. I'm Lisa Raffensperger.
0: Our story on the Bloodhound car is from the IEEE Spectrum Magazine special, Fastest on Earth. Publication received the 2012 National Magazine Award for General Excellence.
2: here. here. Here comes Speed Racer. He's a demon on wheel. He's a demon and he's gonna be chasing after
1: someone.
0: And now for a dip in the ocean in the company of bottlenose dolphins. Bottled-nosed dolphins are found in temperate and tropical oceans worldwide. They use a series of clicks for echolocation to find prey and communicate. This dolphin pod was recorded in Milford Sound, New Zealand, by Dr. Oliver Boisseau for the British Library CD, Sounds of the Deep. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Kern, and Ike Sriskandaraja, with help from James Kerwood, Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Annabelle Ford and Annie Sneed. And a fond farewell to intern Christy Pereira. Congratulations on your new job. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison lierish composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth.
3: I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Go Forward Fund, and PAX World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision making. On the web at PAXworld.com. PAXworld for tomorrow.
8: PRI, Public Radio International.